Section 64 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Cord Lane. Chapter 17, The Scandinavian North by the Reverend W. E. Collins, Part 2. Such was the state of religion in Denmark when the struggle began which led to the overthrow of the Danish church. In May 1525, the nobles complained to Frederick I that the See of Lund had been overlong vacant. They pointed out that the Archbishop of Lund was, quote, the gate and bulwark between Denmark and Sweden as the Duke of Schleswig is between Denmark and Germany, end quote, and begged the king, quote, no longer to allow the church in this land should be thus dealt with, end quote. The circumstances were peculiar. On the death of Archbishop Berger in 1519, the chapter had elected their dean, Orger Sparer. The king had nominated Jürgen Schrödbori and Leo X to the great indignation of the Danes tried to appoint a young Italian by provision. All three were set aside, and Diederich Slaghoek was elected instead. But after his death there was a deadlock. Frederick now attempted to put an end to this by negotiation with the Pope. At first he seemed to have succeeded. Clement Seventh had apparently accepted the nomination of Skudborg and confirmed it. But what had happened in reality was that Skudborg had been induced to buy out his Italian rival, and by so doing had recognized his claim. Frederick was furious at finding that he had been tricked. On August 19, 1526, he published a rescript by which he repudiated the appointment of Skudborg and, with the consent of the Riegsrod, confirmed the election of August Spara, saving, however, Skudborg's right to appeal to the king and the Riegsrod. The accustomed fees for the confirmation were paid to the king instead of the pope. This momentous act had consequences greater, probably, than those who took part in it anticipated. The procedure in question was accepted at the Herlag at Odense in December 1526, not without careful stipulations for the safeguarding of ecclesiastical liberties, and from this time forward no Danish bishop sought papal confirmation. As other sees fell vacant, they were filled in the same way, confirmation being given by the king. But in each case the bishop-elect remained unconsecrated such purely episcopal functions as were required being performed by one or other of the retired bishops or those who like the bishop of greenland had never proceeded to their dioceses meanwhile frederick was rapidly carried in the direction of further change his son christian duke of schleswig was already a convinced lutheran and in fifteen twenty five albert of brandenburg the head of the teutonic order renounced catholicism and as duke of prussia became a suitor for the hand of christian's daughter the prospect of a strong Protestant alliance finally decided the question. Frederick, who had already shown Lutheran inclinations, from this time forward did his utmost to propagate the new views throughout his dominions. Naturally, not a few of his courtiers went with him, and in particular Morgens Gür, the high steward of Denmark, became an ardent reformer. His son Christian had already shown the way in Schleswig and Holstein. A Lutheran preacher named Hermann Tost had been working at Husum since 1522, and under his influence and that of other German preachers from whom Christian had brought in as his chaplains, the new views were spreading everywhere. Early in 1526, Christian attacked Bishop Munch of Riebe, telling him that he ought to provide his diocese with married priests who could preach the gospel. 
The bishop temperately replied that the gospel was already preached, and that, with regard to the marriage of the clergy, quote, when the Holy Church throughout Christendom adopts it, we will do the same. End quote. From this time forward, Christian took matters into his own hands and drew up a new Lutheran order which he imposed on his duchies. Four clergymen who would not accept it were deprived, and the duke's chaplains ordained others in their places. At Flensburg, in 1529, after a disputation between Tast and the Anabaptist Melchior Hoffman, the doctrines of the sacramentaries and Anabaptists were abjured, and the system was complete when Bugenhagen gave them a Lutheran, quote, bishop, unquote, in 1541, and the Danish ritual came into use in 1542. In Denmark, Christian's reforming tendencies were the cause of his never being acknowledged by the Riksråd as successor to the throne during his father's lifetime. Frederick followed his son's lead by nominating Tausen and others as his chaplains, thus at once exempting them from episcopal control and giving them protection. The plan, of course, was not unknown before, but it was so effective that it caused the bishops no little alarm. At the Heredag of 1526, they remonstrated against any preacher being licensed except with their consent, and, quote, in such wise that he preached God's word, unquote. Frederick was discreetly silent on the former point, and answered as to the latter that he never commissioned them to preach anything else. So the practice went on unchecked. Soon it produced its effect in a widespread defection which so alarmed the bishops that they endeavoured to secure the presence in Denmark of Eck or Cochleus, or some other champion of orthodoxy, in order that the doctrinal question might be thoroughly thrashed out. But this proved to be impossible, and they were thrown back on their resources, and resolved to fight it out on the constitutional grounds with which alone they were familiar. At the Heredag at Odense in August 1527, they demanded that the people should be compelled to pay the tithes and other dues, which were now being refused on all sides. This was granted in return for concessions to the nobles, as was also the claim that they should be supported in the exercise of church discipline. But when they went on to protest against the propagation of the new doctrines and the protection of the preachers, Frederick replied that faith is free, and that each man must follow his conscience, that he was lord of men's bodies and of their goods, but not of their souls and that every man must so fashion himself in religion as he will answer for it to God at the last day. He would no longer issue letters of protection to preachers, but if anyone molested those who were preaching what was godly and Christian, he would both protect and punish. He further suggested that the religious question should be decided by a national assembly, convoked for the purpose, but this suggestion was at once repudiated by nobles and bishops alike. He managed, however, to estrange the nobles from the bishops by supporting their attacks on ecclesiastical property, and thus the ecclesiastical movement went on vigorously. In some places the old order was overturned altogether. At Viborg, for instance, even the cathedral came into the hands of the Lutherans in 1529, and at Copenhagen, whither the king had summoned Tausen, they soon had the upper hand. Meanwhile, the bishop seemed incapable of taking the only measures that could have been of any use. Preaching was almost in abeyance on their side, and in many places there were services only two or three times a year, and large numbers of country benefices were left entirely vacant. In 1530, for instance, the sixteen extensive parishes of the Diocese of Aarhus had only two priests between them. In 1530, the contest advanced a stage further. Preparations were being made in Germany for the Diet at Augsburg, which, it was hoped, would put an end to the religious controversy. 
and it seemed to the bishops that the same happy result might be looked for in Denmark, if the Lutheran leaders could be made to appear before the king and the magnates. Twenty-one of them were accordingly cited to appear at Copenhagen, but before the Herodog, the bishops taking care also to secure the help Paul Eliasson and of two German theologians, one of whom was Dr. Stagerfer of Cologne. The session was opened and several days were spent in accusations against the preachers as heretics. When the time came for his reply, Tausen suddenly produced a confession of faith in forty-three articles, which he and his fellows allotted among themselves and publicly defended day after day before the great multitudes of excited people in the Church of the Holy Spirit. At first the bishops only reminded the king of his oath to put down heresy, but finding that this had no effect either upon him or upon the assembly, they drew up twenty-seven articles against the preachers and asked that their opponents might be kept under restraint until the whole matter was decided. Tausen and his followers replied with an apologia, also in twenty-seven articles, in which they made a violent attack upon the whole church system. But here the matter ended. The disputation which had been projected never took place because of a disagreement as to the language in which it was to be held. The bishops asked that it should be in Latin, so that their German advocates might take part. The preachers insisted upon Danish, not only as the language best understood by the assembly, but because their whole appeal was to the common people. Naturally, the popular voice was on their side. There were loud outcries in Copenhagen against the bishops, and still more against the German doctors. And when Frederick dismissed the assembly in joining peace upon both parties, there could be no question that the bishops had lost their case. They were disheartened in many ways. The ablest of their number, Lagerne of Rochilde, was dead. Jürgen Fries of Viborg had been excommunicated rather gratuitously by the Pope. Beldenach had been deprived of his civil rights for disrespect to the crown, and soon afterwards resigned. And his successor, Knut Juldenschana, the same who brought the dethroned Christian to Copenhagen, had so far thrown in his lot with the Lutheran movement as to make Sadolin kind of coadjutor in his diocese, where he translated Luther's shorter catechism into Danish and issued it to the clergy to be used as a manual of instruction. On all hands, the Lutherans were gaining ground. In some places there were iconoclastic outbreaks, though both now and throughout the period they were surprisingly few. And to this day, many of the Danish churches contain their ancient altar tables and rear doses, and the clergy wear the old copes, but everywhere the reform progressed until Elsinore was almost the only stronghold of Catholicism. At this point, however, there came a period of disorder caused by the death of Frederick I at Gotthorp in Schleswig. The effect of Frederick's concessions to the nobles had been to divide the country into a series of semi-independent local governments, and nobles, bishops, and people alike realized that they had everything to gain or to lose under the new king. Under these circumstances, conflict was inevitable. No sooner had the estates come together than the bishops demanded that the religious question should be dealt with. This was distasteful to many of the lay nobles. But in return for concessions they gave way, and it was resolved that the old order should be in all respects upheld, saving for actual abuses that the mass should be restored wherever it had been abolished, and that nobody should preach without the consent of the bishop. Thus all the innovations introduced since the Herodag of Odense in 1527 were swept away. The estates next proceeded to the election of a successor to the crown. The late king, Frederick I., had left two sons, Christian of Schleswig-Holstein and his half-brother Hans. Most of the nobles favoured the former, whilst the bishops placed all their hopes in the latter. 
who was a mere child and still might be kept from Lutheranism. Failing to come to an agreement, they resolved to postpone the election for a year, whereupon Mergensjör and others left Denmark and endeavoured to persuade Christian to claim the crown by force. This he refused to do, but his self-restraint was of little use, for within a year civil war had broken out, the towns smarting under the containment of their privileges at the hands of the lay nobles and of their religious liberties at those of the bishops, began to look back longingly to the days of King Christian II, and soon broke out in revolt. The burgomasters of Copenhagen and Malmö, who were at the head of the movement, made common cause with the democracy of Lerbeck, whose forces took the field under Count Christopher of Oldenburg in order to place the imprisoned Christian II once more on the throne. Such at least was the avowed object of the so-called Count's War, Grievefeide. But behind these were plans of another kind, for the people of Lerbeck, under their determined leader Wulenweber and his admiral Meyer, had only thrown in their lot with the Danish towns in order to get Denmark into their hands so to restore the old supremacy of the Hanseatic League in the north. Christopher directed his forces toward Scheland and disembarked at Skovshovet on June 23, 1534. Copenhagen had opened its gates to him, and Malmö soon drove out the garrison which had been placed there to overawe it and before long the islands had all overthrown their oppressors, often with great ferocity, and proclaimed Christian II. Freedom of worship at once was restored. Bishop Rune von Rochilde was deprived and his see given to the ages Gustav Troller, formerly of Uppsala, and on Rune offering a bribe of ten thousand marks, in order to retain possession of the see, Troller was transferred to Fyen, in the place of Yildenshana, who was likewise ejected. From the islands Christopher turned his attention to the mainland. One of his lieutenants was sent to Jutland, where the peasants quickly gathered round him. The noble at once marched against him, but were routed in the outskirts of Aalborg, and thus the greater part of Jutland once more owned Christian II's sway. But the turning point of the war was already come. In the face of so great dangers the estates had sought an alliance with King Gustavus of Sweden, and another with Duke Christian of Schleswig-Holstein, by the terms of the latter, Christian was to unite against the common enemy, and differences were to be settled afterwards. He observed the terms loyally, but first the nobles of Jutland and those of Fion elected him their king, and at length, in an assembly held at Rue, near Skanderborg, the nobles and bishops of the mainland united in proclaiming him. Whether as ally or as king, everything depended upon him and his power. As Duke of Schleswig, he made peace with Lerbeck, thus becoming free to use his army elsewhere. Then he dispatched his best general, Hans Ranzau, against the peasants of Jutland, who shut themselves up in Aalborg. Ranzau took the town by assault and crushed the rising in Jutland by putting the enemy to the sword, sparing none but women and children. Thence he passed into Fion and inflicted a crushing defeat upon the main body of Christopher's army on the hill of Irsnevjar, near Assens in which Gustav Troller was mortally wounded. Meanwhile, Gustavus had invaded Skorna and Jylland, where his mere presence was enough to restore heart in the nobles, who had only given in their allegiance to Count Christopher through necessity. The Danish admiral Perskram, Danmark's Wolverholz, attacked and defeated the great Lerbeck fleet near Bornholm, thus regaining command of the sea, and Ronsau's army being thereupon transported to Scheland, Copenhagen was invested by land and by sea. These disasters occasioned great disorders at Lerbeck. Wurlenweber and Meyer, having in vain attempted to retrieve their fortunes by sending forth a new commander, Albert of Mecklenburg, were themselves removed from power. 
and Lübeck made its peace with Denmark. Gradually all resistance died away. Malmö opened its gates on April 2nd, 1536. Copenhagen surrendered at discretion on July 29th, and on August 6th, Christian III entered his capital in triumph. Soon after the victory of Athens, Norway had acknowledged his sway. The ascension of Christian, as the bishops well knew, meant their downfall, and it was only actual necessity which had compelled them to accept him. Before the outbreak of the Count's War, it had seemed that their cause might yet triumph. Towson himself had been proceeded against and silenced. Their own authority was restored, and they had even reopened communications with Rome, which had been met, however, with chilling reserve. Now all was lost. Christian III was a determined foe of the old order, and had long expressed his intention of uprooting it, nor were they long kept in suspense. On August 11th, Christian consulted his commanders who agreed that the bishops should be pinioned. At four o'clock the following morning, three of them were brought as prisoners into the castle. Four hours afterwards, the king called together the lay members of the Riksrod and proposed that the bishops should be deprived of their share in the government of the realm and that their possessions should be forfeited to the crown. They not only consented willingly, but also voted that their spiritual powers should no longer be recognized unless it should be approved by a general council of the Danish church, and the remaining bishops were forthwith sought out and arrested. This vote of the Riksrod was approved by a national assembly, Riksrod or Ting, at Copenhagen, in which, however, the nobles took the chief part, which solemnly declared on October 30th, 1536, that they wished to keep the holy gospel and no longer to have bishops, and that the good of the church ought to be given up to the crown in order to lighten the taxation of the people. Thus fell the Danish bishops, as the result partly of the jealousy roused in the nobles by their greed of temporal power, partly in the fanatical Lutheranism of Christian III. They were not badly treated. The Lord of August twelfth had decided that they were to be set at liberty and adequately supported, on condition of their promising to remain quiet. Rurnov, indeed, continued in prison till his death in 1544, but the rest were set free, and two of them, Jürgenshana and Uwe Bilder, ultimately conformed to the new order. Christian now turned to Luther for help. As the services of Melanchthon were not obtainable, Jakob Bugenhagen, who had already organized the reform in Pomerania, was sent in July 1537 to accomplish the same work in Denmark. He was first called upon to crown Christian and his wife, by a usurpation of the ancient privilege of the archbishops of Lund. Then the king nominated seven superintendents who would take the place of the ancient bishops and who soon became known by their name. On September 2nd, Bugenhagen himself, no more than a presbyter, laid hands on them, and thus by a deliberate innovation the new Danish ministry was constituted. Of the persons chosen, all were Danes, with the unfortunate exception of Vondel, a German who knew no Danish, and who had to be accompanied about his diocese by an interpreter. The most important of them was Pedaplada, Palladius, who had studied at Wittenberg and become Bishop of Scheland, and whose Visitatsburg gives us the most graphic picture that we possess of the internal life of the new church. Tausen was so far discredited as to be for the time overlooked, though subsequently, on the death of Wandel, he became Bishop of Riva. On the same day, September 2nd, was published the new church ordinance, Schirke Orenansen, which had been repaired by the Danish theologians and approved by Luther. It was subsequently sanctioned by the Assembly of Odense in 1539, 
and became, with additions made at various later synods, 1540-55, to the fundamental law of the Danish church. The bishops were to have under them a number of provosts or deans rural, and both alike were to be chosen by delegates of the clergy, who in turn were chosen by the people or their representatives, saving the rights of the nobles in some places, all being finally subject to the king's approval. These provisions, however, remained practically inoperative. So far as episcopal elections were concerned, in each diocese there were to be two diocesan officers, Stiftslandsmund, who administered the confiscated church property, or so much of it as had not fallen into the hands of the nobles, in the name of the king, and with the bishops supervised the finances of the church, hospitals, and schools, and confirmed the election of the lower clergy. These latter continued to hold their share of the tithe, to which the nobles still refused to contribute. The episcopal tithe, however, was confiscated and largely used for good works. The university, which had fallen into decay, was greatly enlarged. Ecclesiastical revenues were applied to the support of men of merit, and learning in the plans of Christian II with regard to education were at length carried out. A liturgy was compiled, and a new translation of the Bible from the original tongues was set on foot. For the rest, changes were made gradually, and there was, at first, little disorder. The Augsburg Confession was ultimately adopted with certain modifications, and Towson's Confession of 1530 was dropped. On the other hand, the formula of Concord was never accepted by the Danish Church. The monastic houses and cathedral chapters were not at once abolished, though their members were free to depart. The chapter of Rochilda was engaged in a formal disputation with Palladius, and others as late as December 1543. This and most of the other chapters only ceased to exist as the canons died out, and the convent of women at Maribur was not suppressed until 1521. Unfortunately, in other respects, a very different temper prevailed as time went on. In 1551, Christian was compelled to issue an edict forbidding the nobles to treat the children of ministers as serfs. The power and influence of the nobles were, however, considerably increased under his rule the downfall of clerical authority contributing largely to this result. The adherents of the Roman communion were treated with no little severity, and the Pole John Lasky, when he left England at the commencement of Queen Mary's reign, found that there was no toleration in Denmark for such heretics as himself and his followers. Nevertheless, in spite of many drawbacks, the Reformation brought with it a distinct advance in civilization, and when Christian III died on New Year's Day 1559, Denmark was in a more settled condition than it had been since the days of Queen Margaret, whilst trade and learning flourished as they had never done before. 2. The Reformation in Norway and Iceland The same thing could hardly be said with regard to the result of the changes in Norway and Iceland, where the ecclesiastical order had been much less unpopular and probably less in need of reform than in Denmark. In fact, it cannot be said that in either case any popular movement for reformation existed. As regards Norway, Frederick I had made the same promises to uphold the church and to put down Lutherans which he had made in Denmark, and his change of opinion was followed by the same results in both countries. In 1528 there came to Bergen a Lutheran preacher named Antonius, who seems to have devoted himself mainly to the German residents. Next year he was followed by two others, Hermann Freger and Jens Vibor, who bore royal letters of protection similar to those which had been given to Towson, and perhaps one or two more in other places. Meanwhile, a systematic spoliation began of the religious houses and churches in Bergen. 
in fifteen twenty eight the nonasatar cloister was secularized and given over as his residence to vincent lunga the commander of the royal citadel bergenhus soon afterwards the dominican priory was destroyed by fire apparently with the connivance of lunga and the prior jens mortensen who are said to have divided the spoil and the chapel royal was pillaged but these were nothing compared to the outrageous proceedings of escabilde who replaced lunga in fifteen twenty nine and became known as shirka Brüder, from his activity in destroying churches about the citadel of bergen stood a group of the richest and most venerable churches in norway together with the palace of the archbishops of Trondheim and the canons houses on the pretext for what seems to have been no more that they interfered with the effective character of the fortress frederick ordered an attack to be made on these one by one they were destroyed and their treasures removed to denmark and at length in may fifteen thirty one the ancient cathedral itself was demolished this was done in pursuance of a bargain made some three months before with the bishop of bergen olaf torschelsen who by which he was to receive in exchange for his palace and cathedral the great monastery of munkeliv formerly benedictine now brigittine on the further side of the harbour these proceedings naturally gave courage to the disaffected the lutherans now seized upon the church of st cross whilst the german merchants introduced their minister antonius to the church of st halvard and another in the maria Schirke. whether archbishop olaf engelbrechtsen of Trondheim would have been able to do anything to stay the hand of the destroyer is, is perhaps doubtful for his own diocese was not a little troubled by the same kind of thing but as a matter of fact it was only when the work was complete that his suffragan of bergen told him what was being done archbishop olaf was already none too well disposed towards king frederick in fifteen twenty three whilst on his way to rome to be consecrated he had gone to malines where the exiled christian the second who might still have claimed to be the legal king of norway then resided and had sworn allegiance to him on his way home the archbishop had visited copenhagen and had done homage to frederick i nor does he seem to have flinched from his allegiance but the spoliations in norway now made him feel that the church would be safer under christian or at any rate that they could get on better without frederick he was by no means the only man in norway who held this view and christian himself was at this very time seeking an opportunity of invading norway before long it came the bishops and the danish nobles in norway were summoned to a herdag to meet in copenhagen in june fifteen thirty one the archbishop being provided with a good excuse in a great fire which devastated Trondheim and almost destroyed the cathedral remained behind on november fifth christian reached the norwegian coast with a fleet of twenty-five ships and a considerable army and the next day he issued a proclamation to the people of norway in which he put himself forward as their deliverer and summoned them to gather round him at oslo the archbishop accepted and proclaimed him as did the bishops but in a somewhat lukewarm fashion and christian dissipated his energies and wasted his opportunities to such an extent that the following year he was compelled to make overtures to his uncle which as we have seen ended in his imprisonment frederick was far too wise to push matters to an extremity and the bishops were glad to purchase their safety by paying him fines but two monasteries which had given help to christian were secularized and knut Yuldenshana carried off no small amount of church plunder to denmark the death of frederick i and the wars which followed once more plunged norway into disorder the archbishop was at the head of the norwegian council 
and had he only known his own mind, it is possible that he might have chosen his own king, or even secured the independence of Norway. But he hesitated until Duke Christian had won his first victories, and then it was too late. In May 1535, the bishops of Oslo and Hamar, together with the chief nobles of the south, signed a manifesto by which they accepted Christian III as king, provided that he would promise to be faithful to the ancient laws of Norway and they sent this to the archbishop and the northern lords for their signature. By this time, Olaf was beginning to recognize the fact that anything was better than a Lutheran king, and just then he received a letter from the emperor, urging him to support the claims of Frederick, the Count Palatine, who was about to marry the daughter of the imprisoned Christian II. He therefore temporized in the hope that matters might settle themselves. Soon, however, there came two emissaries of Duke Christian to Norway, with instructions to press forward his cause, whereupon the members of his party decided to go northwards to Tronium. They arrived towards the end of December, 1535, and a council was at once summoned, at which were present the bishops, the chief Danish nobles in Norway, and a considerable number of the Bunder and their northern provinces. Vincent Lunga, the chief adherent of Duke Christian, at once demanded that he should be elected king, and that Norway should forthwith pay Scott to him. To this it was answered, reasonably enough, that no election could be complete until the person chosen should have promised to observe the laws and customs of Norway, and that not till then was Scott due. The Bunder now withdrew and held a hasty consultation with the archbishop, from which, probably roused by his words, they rushed in a fury to the house of Vincent Lunga and slew him. Some of the other leaders barely escaped with their lives, and these were at once arrested and imprisoned by Olaf. There followed a short and ill-judged attempt on the part of Olaf to get the upper hand in Norway. But his party was less strong than he had supposed, and before long practically the whole land was subject to Christian, and Olaf was seeking terms. Presently, losing all hope, the archbishop collected all the treasure upon which he could lay his hands, together with the archives of the kingdom, and set sail for the Netherlands on April 1st, 1537. He died at Lierre in Brabant on March 7th of the following year. His departure left the way open for Christian III, who almost immediately took possession. He had already taken steps both to avenge himself and to put an end to what had long been a serious danger to his realm. But the third article of his capitulation, made in the Riksdag at Copenhagen in October 1536, he avowed that the kingdom of Norway should, quote, hereafter be and remain under the crown of Denmark, and not hereafter or be called a separate kingdom, but a dependency of the kingdom of Denmark. End quote. Thus, Norway lost its ancient liberties at a stroke. After this, although the recess on religion, which had been put forth at the same time, ratifying the changes which had already been made, said nothing of Norway, and it was inevitable that the Norwegian church should fall after the example of her sister in Denmark. One by one the bishops were turned out, with two exceptions. Hans Reff, the bishop of Oslo, a man of easy convictions, soon succeeded in convincing the king of his own conversion to Lutheranism, and was reinstated in charge not only of Oslo, but of Hamar, where he remained till his death in 1545. Jebel Persson, the bishop-elect of Bergen, a man of far nobler character, had become a convinced Lutheran. In 1537 he went to Denmark, where Bugenhagen laid hands on him, and returned to take charge as Bishop of Bergen and Stavanger. 
for the rest little or none of the care which was taken in denmark to supply the teachers preachers and schools was extended to norway the undermanning of the bishoprics was typical of what went on elsewhere in large numbers of country places the old clergy were left till they died at their deaths their places were left unoccupied the few lutheran pastors who were sent to norway were unacquainted with the ancient norse language which was still to a large extent used in country places their attempts to obtain possession of the tithes led to frequent disputes which often ended in bloodshed and on the whole the reformation caused as much harm to the social condition of the people in norway for half a century at any rate as it did good in denmark in iceland things were even worse at first indeed there seemed to be hope of a conservative reformation for bishop jeser einerschen of skalholt who had been educated in germany began making changes on the lines of those in denmark though without overturning the ancient ministry and an icelandic version of the new testament printed in fifteen forty found plenty of readers but when a formal attempt was made to introduce the danish ecclesiastical system there came a violent reaction in fifteen forty eight bishop jon arson of holum and Ugmund, the ex-bishop of skalhult placed themselves at the head of what rapidly grew into a revolt against the danish power and although the former was taken prisoner in fifteen fifty one by david gudmundishen and executed as a traitor together with his two sons his followers long strove to avenge his death it was not till fifteen fifty four that they were put down and the reformation imposed by force on iceland End of section 64